Battles with Bits of Rubber, the podcast about making prosthetics. Please choose from the following options so we may direct your call. Press 1 if you have poured up a silicone mold and forgotten to add catalyst. Press 2 if you have taken in a job only to realize you are woefully underqualified, but it's too late to back out. Press 3 if you need to get responses for a survey you are doing for college. Press 4 if you have been asked to work for exposure and the director needs a lift to the location. For all other inquiries, or to speak to a bearded workshop monkey in overalls who quotes obscure lines from 80s horror movies, please hold. Is that a printer I can hear purring away in the background? Yep, I've got the, the lulls bot going, and I've, both of them are going right now. I'm, I'm printing the spinal cord on the resin printer and a herniated disc, and I'm printing my head on, on the lulls bot. I'm going to make a food-safe silicone mold so my sister can make bunt cakes. Oh, nice. And what is that you're doing there that's very noisy? <laughs> oh, it uh, was the lens, little lens cloth. All right. Is it all crinkly? It's an acoustic treat for the ASMR folks. (laughs) (laughs) So the Columbo episode we watched was one neither neither Donna or I had ever seen before. Oh, that's cool. Who was uh, in it? Anyone famous? Ray Ray Milland and Robert Culp. Oh, fantastic. Robert Culp is fucking amazing. Yeah. You remind me of him. That, I've heard that before. That he were there were doppelgangers. Uh, yeah. But he he had a detective agency, and he was blackmailing the wife of uh, Ray Milland, and he killed her because he had a really bad temper. He didn't mean to kill her. He just he got really pissed. His rag. Smacked her, and then he hit her on in the head. Uh, is this one when he had a contact lens on the floor? Yep, that's the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <That's the one. laughs> we're both Columbophiles. Yeah. Do one Amazing. more thing, sure. Well, that's cool. Well, we have an, uh, a rather splendid episode this time around. Not that they're not usually splendid, but I'm very pleased about this one. It's very cool. Oh, yeah. This one was a joy to record, and I'd love to take a class with, with Adam. I think it would be quite beneficial. He has, you know, no matter how good a sculptor you get to be, I think you can always learn something from somebody else. You totally can. And I'm, and I'm by no means a great sculptor. Uh, Adam. Adam is amazing, though. Holy crap. So uh, the episode, if you've seen the episode, oh, you'd know, but number 72. We're up to number 72, man. Can we you believe well. that? I know, it's crazy. I mean, it's only taken us about eight years to get there, but <laughs> <laughs> we are slow and steady. Yeah. <laughs> slow and steady wins the race. So, yeah, um, I, yeah Adam Bean, who uh, I'll read from his Stan Winston bio. So his Stan Winston School of Character Arts bio says... Adam Bean is is a renowned master sculptor known for his highly realistic portraits and dynamic poses. Since he began sculpting, Adam has become internationally recognized for the extraordinary emotive and expressive qualities of his pieces. Oh, and he does and he does small stuff. Yeah, I think on his website or his Instagram page, some he did a, a head of Matt Damon that's probably not much not much not much bigger than a quarter. I mean, it's really small, and it it's freaking looks exactly like matt damon yeah he does these amazing things and um i'd not i was a bit nervous about speaking to him because i was so i've been following his stuff for a while um and one of the things i didn't mention to him actually i, I, I wish i told him about it but when i do 
um, sculpting sort of demos and stuff or presentations, I, I have like a, a group of different sculptors whose work I show to kind of show people the range of what sculpture is, because a lot yeah. of people don't really know the kind of range of sculpture. So we'll look at like, you know, some, some classic stuff, some Renaissance sculptors and all that kind of stuff. And then look at Evan Penny who sculpts in like relief and all that kind of stuff. And then I show them, you know, the Jordu stuff. And then I, I show them Adam Bean stuff because, you know, he used to sculpt a lot of really, really small things. Miniature, he worked for toys and McFarlane toys and things like that. So he's, um, there's not many people I've seen that do that kind of stuff. And it's really nice to show people. So for, for years, I've been kind of, you know, silently kind of watching and admiring him. So it's actually sort of speaking. Yeah. And I, I, well, I, I sure hope things get there. I, I would love for CX-5, the clay he developed to be a thing again. Yes. Yeah. He developed like a clay, which was like, it sculpted like when you heated it, it sculpts like clay, but when it cools, it hardens to a plastic. Like, like plastic. Yeah. It's, amazing kind of like castelline but but better yeah yeah and one of the things that i thought was amazing as you'll you'll hear when you i mean we'll just let you get to the chat and listen to it but one of the things that was was amazing was that he he's he's one of those guys that's done so many jobs like like proper just like hard work smelly working on a factory line jobs and and but he always seems to kind of he's a very good example of someone that just does what they need to do and then he has stuff left over to think about what happened and how he's going to address it yeah he he has no fear. He'll he'll tackle anything. Yeah, and it's it's really nice to see actually. So um, it, it was it was a lovely lovely chat, and I was really pleased we got to speak to him for as long as we did. Um, so yeah, so so go to the bathroom before you start listening because it's a long one. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a hefty episode, um, but uh, that's how we roll. I mean, we don't have uh, like thirty five minute or you know commercial breaks or limitations. It's the beauty of a podcast. You just you know suck it up and uh, and enjoy. So uh, yeah. Hope you enjoyed as much as we did recording it. Can we talk a little bit about how you got into sculpting? What was it? Did you meet someone or was there a formative person at school or were you just always into making stuff with clay or was it just something you did suddenly one day and discovered, holy shit, I like sculpting? Or... Yeah, it's always hard to know exactly how to answer a question like that because there's so many places where a story could start. Um, I suppose... Uh, we've got some time here. It's a podcast. So um, I suppose I'd say, because I'm used to giving sort of soundbite answers and the soundbite answer is, yeah. you know, a little bit more of, you know, like, oh, I've always been interested in sculpting and then I had an opportunity. But the sort of more in-depth answer is I've been interested in art. My mom used to tell me I, I was drawing from the moment I could hold a pencil. Um, and it was always drawing. It was, it was about like hyper-realistic drawing for me for for years and years and years. Um, and then at a summer camp one day in Freedom, New Hampshire, a friend brought in a magazine called Bizarro. It was Tom, C Tom Sabini's Bizarro. Um, yeah. And this is, you know, shortly after Friday the 13th came out. And I was just, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. This is what I want to do with my life. And that, that sort of like uh, vision for my future held until I was graduating high school and I heard that, um, you know, Lucas went like basically totally digital and it was such a bummer to me. Like, I was like, ah, I don't want to spend my days sitting in front of a computer. I want to make things. I want to be, you know, in the shop creating stuff. And so I, I went a totally different path. Um, I went into industrial design briefly. <laughs> Decided I didn't like art school um, after about a year and a half of it. Mm -hmm. 
and I switched to philosophy. A bit of a story there. I'm not going to bore you with it, but um, long story short, I was I was working just like a regular guy, like you know, working in factories and whatnot, and um, putting myself, you know, partly putting myself through school um, for philosophy. And my sister, who lived in New York, was like, "Hey, why don't you come? If you're going to temp this summer." in factories, why don't you temp in factories down here in New York? She lived in Brooklyn. You know, New York's way more fun than um, where I was living, which was uh, Providence, Rhode Island at the time. So I moved down to New York for a little bit. And the week I got there, a friend of hers left a sculpture studio. And she was like, hey, you've always been interested in sculpting. Like, why don't you, uh, why don't you give that a try? And I went and I talked to the guy. He hired me on the spot, never asked for a portfolio. He was just like looking for a warm body to like move stuff around the studio. And then he tried me out on some stuff and I surprised the hell out of everyone, including myself. And uh, it sort of, it just, it clicked. It just clicked. And we were doing like bath toys. That's so cool. Yeah, we were doing bath toys. We were doing um, medical training models. So this is my first time really, like I had done two sculpting classes in high school. And then in college, I had done an independent study class, like just one doing like a self-portrait in clay. And I had done like some like figurative sculpting, but like nothing much. And then that, and that was years ago. And then went down, you know, went to, to philosophy and all that stuff. And then here I was getting paid to make things for the first time ever. I was like, it was unbelievable. It was just the coolest feeling. Like, even if it was like little bath toys, I was like, I can't, or, you know, I was, one of my first sculptures ever was sculpting Pokemon. And I don't know anything about Pokemon. I don't care about it, but it was like cool to be getting paid to make something with my hands. I just couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started. So it's a real sink or swim thing for you. It was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm a firm believer that there are no accidents. I'll I'll take issue with you. I'm a firm believer in that. (laughs) If you wait long enough, you can ascribe meaning to anything like something, something retrospective, right? Like uh, fate is always retrospective. Like if you wait until some, good event happens, yeah. then you, you get to that inflection point. You get to look backward and be like, ah, see, this is why that happened. Yeah. But uh, all the way up until that good thing happens, it's just like, why did this happen to me? Yeah, yeah. Um, but if it hadn't worked out, you know, I just would have gone back to, I was, you know, I was, I've worked in more factories than you can shake a stick at. And I've had, I've worked as an exterminator. I've worked, uh, you know, pumped gas. I've, you know, flipped chickens as a, uh, short so all of those cook. experiences of all of those experiences had to have come together to help focus where you are now in some way you know i think um, i think the more you the more experience you have the the more able you are to fine-tune your own direction at the Does very least it's humbling you know i've done a lot of manual labor like uh you know and i actually you know i really liked like i liked doing landscaping um you know you're outside you're moving stuff around you're getting exercise but some of the jobs that are really bad like fumigating um pumping gas some of the factories i worked in you know swing shift in a thermal forming department of an industrial waste liner can, company you know those are jobs you don't nobody wants those mm-hmm. nobody nobody wants those jobs and it's that much sweeter when you get your first job making something, even if you're sculpting Psyduck. You're like, okay, yeah, 
this beats the swing shift in the thermal forming department where, you know, I've had jobs, so many jobs where the only thing they ask you is, do you have earplugs? Do you have um, steel toe boots? And, and can you lift 60 pounds with no problem? And uh, if the answer to those three things is yes, you're hired. And so, yeah, so those, those are like humbling experiences. And it's sort of, um, you know, I always thought, well, this will give me something to write about someday. <laughs> well, I think working like with your hands and just working a job, you know, like that was just proper graft. I think when you're sculpting and stuff, it's like, you're not, you're not going to be resistant to that difficulty because sculpting can be hard work sometimes in terms of not so oh, much sure. physical, if you're not working on anything huge, but just the internal kind of like, I don't know, the self-loathing and the difficulty, or you're not going right, and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Can we talk a bit about that? Because I know you're saying like you teach sculpting as well. When I've taught, uh, you see, and I don't know if it's true to say a lot nowadays, more so than perhaps before, or it might just be that more people are trying things, but it, there's a very real um, sense of like, a lot of people get, get very frustrated when things don't go right when they're sculpting. Um, can we sort of pick a bit about that, that the, the mindset of how that, do you experience that? And how do you approach that with people who, who you know, they're despondent because it's not going right. And it's like, well, I think, I don't know if it's because so many things nowadays are so streamlined and their apps and everything works out the box straight away that we kind of mm -hmm. forgotten that that's not how it, it we, we're not owed that, you know, it's just that there is difficulty. Yes. It's worth having is, is usually born out of difficulty and great struggle. So yeah, uh, some words of wisdom, I think about that, where your brain goes, sure, yeah, absolutely. goes south, you know? <laughs> and I'm not sure that, um, you know, there's an interesting fine point, fine distinction to be made there about everything worth having comes with extreme difficulty. It's, I think for me, it's, it feels more worth having if it has come at some expense to you. Um, it's, it's dearer to you, you know, the success is sweeter. And I think that you're going to have a more intimate knowledge of whatever that subject is, if you have struggled with it. Mm -hmm. And when I'm teaching sculpting, the first thing that I teach, the first thing that I tell anybody is, well, I, I start with drawing, by the way. I always start with drawing when I'm teaching sculpting. And I teach how to observe. Drawing is so much easier. And I know that there's, there's so many 2D artists out there who are, you know, are gonna bristle at this, but um, I've done hyper-realistic drawing. I've done hyper-realistic sculpting. Drawing is like a hundred times easier because it only has to be right from one angle. So I start with drawing and then we, you know, typically make our way into sculpting. And the thing I tell everybody, every student, no matter what their level is, that I've never had, I think I can say this uh, completely truthfully, I've never had a project I haven't struggled with mightily. And every sculpture goes through dark hours. And one of the, the things like probably the, the most like wisdomy wisdom that I can sort of impart is work, learn to work quickly. And the reason for this is, and I'm always banging this drum, my students will know this, they, they hear this all the time. If you work quickly, then it didn't take you a long time to make your mistakes. If you spend a long time making a mistake, you're gonna be married to that mistake. And because, you know, it's, it's like the sunk cost fall fallacy, right? Like you've got all this invested in it, you're less likely to, to scrap it. So if you can learn to work quickly, you know, it's the, from entrepreneurship, they say fail fast. Mm -hmm. If you can learn to work quickly, 
then if you have made a mistake, you don't have much invested in it. And you're more likely to go back and do the thing that it needs in order for it to be corrected. And typically what that needs is to be cut and moved around. And my sculptures, I'm always cutting them up and I'm moving things around and I'm switching stuff and I get in there and I really, really tinker with them. This is one of the reasons I like to sculpt without armatures, you know, cause I can just slice them up and slap them back together. But yeah, dark hours, man, every project, every project has dark hours where you're like, and I don't know if like on a big project or, or like a really, really like super realistic thing that I'm working on clothing folds, you know, a portrait. There's always that time where I'm like, who the hell let me do this? <laughs> like, like, there's a, there's a Gary Larson cartoon. I don't know if either of you are familiar with the far side. An elephant is sitting on stage um, in front of a grand piano and the thought bubble is thinking, Christ, what am I doing here? I, I'm a, I'm a flutist for Christ's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like that during at some point during the sculpture like like what the hell am I doing here I think that's going to be quite gratifying for people to hear when they see pictures of your work and realize that that's what's behind it it's not just this effortless thing that just you know you drop the claim by the time it hits the ground it's it's kind of roughed itself out it's like no yeah everything's yeah. and I, I you know I've, I've had those where I remember I was um I was doing like sometimes, and it's interesting with portraiture, sometimes it just comes together like that. Mm -hmm. uh, fastest I've ever gotten a portrait, like gotten, I don't mean like, like I just posted a Bjork rough on my Instagram. Um, that was a half hour sketch. That was amazing. Bob. And like, <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I, I said 45 minutes. I think it was actually half an hour. I said in the post, I said 45 sure, minutes. But even for but an actually, hour. In reality, hour. I think it was yeah and it yeah. was very very but um yeah. but uh, and that's a sketch and there's like all kinds of loads of things wrong with it you know mm -hmm. the fastest i've ever gotten a portrait like huh that's pretty close to done was three hours and that was our, i think her name was arlie shoshan i think she was a actress um she portrayed uh and forgive me if i say this wrong at twilight i think in star wars right. um i think that's how they pronounce it um Sometimes portraits just they, they come together and then sometimes, and it really depends on, on the person's face. Like some people, some people's faces are so much more expressive than other people's faces. And it's just like, like Robin Williams, you know, his, his face changes from frame to frame. Practically, he looks like different people. And it's like, you're like, oh, it's because he has a rubber face. And you're like, well, yeah, Jim Carrey though. Jim Carrey doesn't like, he looks like Jim Carrey in every frame. Like it's not that confusing. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting process. What do you find to be the most difficult thing about doing likenesses? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that because it's just assumed it's all difficult. It is for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a, you know. Oh, okay. All right. Here we go. This is something that um, my sculpture students will also be familiar with. Um, so I have a lot of theories because I'm largely self-taught. And, and I wanna be careful when I say that because nobody exists in a vacuum, right? We're all standing on other people's shoulders. I did not, I didn't study officially sculpture, a like a, a course of sculpture study at a school. I'm not nearly as familiar with the masters as I should be and embarrassed to admit that. 
I'm still learning the names of muscles. I'm embarrassed to, to admit that too. Um, I've never done an ecorche figure in my life, but so I'm self-taught to the extent that like I come from toys and then I started sculpting people and I was like dynamite at it right out of the gate. So there is, there, you know, obviously there's like aptitudes, right? Not everybody can be like Lance Armstrong when they hop on a bicycle. So I have come up with my own theories about things and I don't know if they're reflected in sort of like the popular mainstream of how people learn sculpting. I don't think they are because I've never heard anybody talk about this stuff. So one of the things that I've come to is what I call visual magnets. Um, and visual magnets are things that will drag your sculpture off true. I had the experience um, when I was starting out of just trying and trying and trying and trying to get, and I don't remember who I was working on, but someone's, I think it was someone's nose or their lips that, that weren't right. It just wasn't. And I was like, I can't, I can't believe that I'm doing it wrong for this long. Like I know that I'm accurately portraying this person's mouth. Like this is insane, but it kept looking wrong. Finally, I was like, screw it, screw it. I'm going on to something else. And I fixed his eyes and boom, his mouth was perfect. And it was such a startling moment for me. And I realized that some other area of your sculpture can be off. And this is why now I teach rough the whole thing in. When I'm sculpting, I imagine it's like coming out of the fog. So I get the whole thing roughed in. If the person has a beard, if they've got big hair, you know, a, a bouffant, whatever, a beehive, sculpt that thing in. It is insane the number of times I see people sculpt a person bald. I'm like, how are you possibly gonna get it correct? And, and some people are very good at it and not to take anything away from somebody else's method, but I think you get more life in the sculpture. I think it's more interesting, more engaging if you get their whole character first mm -hmm. and keep dialing it in and keep dialing it in and it's like coming into focus, right? There are some things that are going to mess you up and those are the things that I call visual magnets. So if somebody has crazy big hair, right? You're not probably gonna get the rest of their face correct unless you get that in. It helps you judge proportions. And then the worst, in my opinion, is somebody with high contrast, features. So if they have really dark hair, really dark mustache, really dark eyebrows, or, you know, all the time when I'm sculpting women who have a lot of mascara, like I just did a quick sculpture of Kristen Bell. Kristen Bell, um, her eyes are sort of close set. She puts a lot of eyeliner on the outsides of her eyes to sort of drag her eyes apart mm -hmm. visually. You can't sculpt mascara. You can't sculpt dark eyebrows. You can't sculpt a big, heavy, dark mustache. So when I'm starting to sculpt a, a portrait student out, I will start them out with a low contrast face. So somebody with dark skin, they won't have, you know, if they have black hair um, and they have really dark skin, they won't have a high contrast face. If they have really light skin and blonde hair and blue eye, yeah, blonde hair, blonde eyebrows, you know, light blue eyes or you know, eyes you can get away with by digging in, sure, right? Sure. So if they have like dark brown eyes, you can dig holes in there. 
but dark eyebrows like what are you going to dig holes you can you, you can like excavate a, a line <laughs> in their face i do that sometimes yeah to just get and sometimes you know i'll take a picture and i'll photoshop it you know um like with Kristen bell like now is it right is it right i have no idea and then i'll take a picture of it photoshop it and i'll put on the mascara and i'm like oh yeah okay nailed it or that's mad yeah that's something I've really thought about, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're distracted by the color and the surface, and actually you just need the, the surface information, but you're obviously... Yeah, so Stuart, if I, were to, if I were to sculpt you, no problem, because, you know, your beard is light enough, and I could faithfully represent that beard. Or if somebody has a dark beard, but it's iconic enough, like Stalin, you know, you could... That he Stalin's got a very iconic sort of look about him, mm-hmm. um, you know, with that with that mustache. I don't, in my in my memory, it's like a curly cue sort of mustache. I don't think it is quite that. But um, so if somebody's iconic enough and we're familiar enough, you know, with their face, um, then you can get away with not having it be the correct visual color. But this is you know this is the reason people don't recognize life casts. Yes, the moment a, a, a face is drained of color. Who is it, you know, especially, especially the women in, in Hollywood, because we're so accustomed to their look. If you look at, um, you know, Marilyn Monroe versus Jean, um, oh shoot, what was her name before she became- Jean Har- Harlow, right? Jean Harlow, yeah. So, you know, if you look at her when she was Jean Harlow without any makeup on, they look like completely different people. Like whoever, the person who designed her makeup look did an amazing job with her like her face as the sort of the blank canvas um you know they did an absolutely stellar job designing her her look but she looks like a totally different person yeah so so that's the other thing is when you are sculpting somebody who has and this is one of the things i will do i will take reference photo reference um and i will if somebody has really dark eyebrows blank them out. If somebody has really dark hair, flood it, you know, in Photoshop, flood it with like a lighter color, you know, try to make their face as monochromatic as possible. And you'll be saving yourself a ton of, um, of heartache. Now that's not possible in real life when you're sculpting someone in real life, but it's a great way to practice. Mm, Yeah. I guess that's something you'd have to learn to ignore, but you could start, like you say, by making those, steps to even it out so it becomes less about the contrast and you can focus on the actual shape of things and then once there's some stuff there then you can kind of work into it because you've got something to to dig into exactly so amazing yeah i'm going to give that a try and i'll let you know how i progress cool that's a really good tip that's that's not something i'd really consider because when you were saying about that i was thinking yeah in lifecast i've had people like i had one actress that that uh, said that that wasn't her face even though the life cast hadn't left the room it was like it's not what you think you look like this is just the surface topography of your face but, and scans well, it's quite startling yeah it's quite startling and you know because you lose the um sort of the the bit of translucency that you have to 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 your skin i remember the first time i saw my life cast and i don't have the smoothest skin in the world but when i saw my life cast i was just like oh my 
God, that's a lot of texture right there. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, I mean, like you were saying, like when you know you look at your own life class, when you're also when you look at a sculpt that you're doing and where someone's working on something that they've done, I think that's the thing is like you see something's wrong immediately, but obviously you're mm. present through its genesis. You're there as you're making it, and it's quite difficult to sort of make those qualitative decisions as the maker and like someone else you could look at somebody else's sculpt and go oh the nose is too far forward that's why that looks yeah, yeah. when you've done yeah, it absolutely. it's kind of like you were saying you're so married which is why i guess you were saying work quickly because then you can kind of bounce off of somebody else and then make those decisions because you're not so invested in it well it's it's like staring at the sun isn't it you know like you, you look away and it's all you can see you just see these the spots in front of your eyes if you've been staring at that face for, you know, if you've been staring at the nose mm. for hours, you know, you're not going to see it anymore. It's burned out your retinas. Um, you know, you need to, and you need to keep it fresh. This is another thing that I, that I always teach is stand up. You're so much, it just changes your, um, it changes your emotional bearing you're more willing to make moves, to do things. I see so many sculptors and when, you know, like I've taught at a bunch of schools and everybody comes in and, and they're all sitting in chairs waiting for me to show them how to sculpt. You know, if I'm doing like special effects or something and sculpt on their life casts or, you know, creature stuff, you know, like here. And I'm like, number one, everybody's gonna stand up and I don't care. I know it's like gonna be a long day, but we have to, everybody has to stand up. Your energy level is gonna be higher. And if your energy level is higher, you're gonna make those bold moves. I've seen time and time again, where people just tickle a thing, they tickle it and they tickle it and they tickle it. And then they stand up and boom, their arms are moving more. They're making bigger movements. And when you stand up, you can stand back from it. You know. It's, it's a great way to get a, a new perspective. Yeah. You can so stand up, on. stand back. This is, you know, everybody, everybody I work with has, uh, has heard me say to them, stand up, stand back. That's a really good piece of advice. I like to look at, I like to look at the sculpture upside down as well, because you we're, we're so used to seeing things. It's like when you shine a flashlight up underneath your face, it changes the whole dynamic of, of the way you look because we're so used to being illuminated from above. If you know, you're looking at your sculpture and you see something doesn't feel right and you don't quite know what it is, turn it upside down. You have to, oh yeah, the left nostril is there. You go. Yeah. Not, not flared as much as the right, but you don't notice it when you're looking at it normally. But as soon as you flip it upside down, what's wrong with it just stands out like a mm -hmm. sore thumb. As long as you also flip your reference upside down. Yeah. You know, yeah. same with the mirror. You know, I've, I've heard, you know, lots of people work and they'll, they'll throw their piece in front of a mirror. Um, I, I don't, but um, again, it's one of those things that, you know, it, whatever works for, for whomever. Yeah. You could try it um, out and see. So it's interesting. Cause you, you sculpt a lot of like, like, like you say, portrait heads and stuff. I, I haven't really done that much of it. We did a bit of it at school and we can talk a bit about that in a set, but um, the, with prosthetics and things, one of the things I found is interesting is like, is, is like you say, working quite quickly to block the shapes out and block the forms. But I think the problem is the difficulty, especially when you're starting out is you don't see a person as a series of planes or a series of masses. You, you are distracted by the surface. And what, right. what I've done with um, some reference pictures of the students, I've, I, I've gotten them to, we blur the pictures in Photoshop 
and print those out so you don't see the detail you just see the mass forms and yes. that kind of and i think that's what you were saying about like working quickly it's kind of training yourself to not be distracted by the surface that you're seeing because that's that's the final thing and none of that matters if their their head's not the right shape so <laughs> that's just wallpaper in a crappy wall you know absolutely absolutely the case and in fact um i think i have something I have something right here. I've got my finger on the pulse of a lot of different fields. Uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated by what's what's going on in you know in in science. Um, one of my my favorite subjects of all time is aerodynamics and um, and, and acoustics. I guess you could throw in there. I'm a musician, I'm constantly trying to you know just like. I'm alive. I love being alive. I love just like everything, everything science. I just absorb it. So I came across this study. I don't even remember what I was researching, but I'll show you gentlemen this and, and the people at home, I'll give them the, the link so they could, uh, they could follow this. But if you, if you can see this, mm -hmm. I'm holding up a page with two faces on it. And on the left, it looks like, what does it look like to you on the left? Either of you? Looks like a guy kind of, Gritting his teeth. Gritting angry guy. And on the right, looks yeah. like, like a... Just a neutral female. Neutral female. Face. And then when I oh, wow. bring it up close... Wow. They switch, they switch places. Oh. The neutral female is now on the left and the guy gritting his teeth is now on the right. Why does that happen? It's an amazing illusion, right? That is incredible. Wow. Yeah. They switch spots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Okay, that's, so that's the point. They, they switch spots. Sorry, I'm looking in my in the camera on the computer. So left and right is you know flipped for me. Yeah, yeah. no, it's mental. But, um, That's so cool. Yeah, it's absolutely insane, right? And so this is from a a study done by Philippe. I'm gonna mess up their names. Uh, um, Philippe Shins and Odd Olivia in 1992. They made these hybrid images using high pass filters and low pass filters. And essentially what it is, is they combined these two images um, and they became known as Dr. Angry and Mr. Smile. But I think it's actually Mrs. Smile. And they overlaid the details, that's the high pass filter, over the blurred images, which is the low pass filter. So your eye can only see the low pass stuff from far away. You see the, the shadows, you see the, the patterns of light and dark. But when you get up close, your mind focuses on the details. And so it's possible to have a sculpture. And I actually want to do this someday. I want to do a sculpture that has someone's details over the forms of someone else's face. So that up close, it will look like one person and far away, it'll look like someone else. Oh man, that'd be but, amazing. So That's such a neat I, idea. I want to see that. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you can do it. You can kind of do it with paint on a sculpture on a life cast for instance but you want to do uh, it sculpturally but i would love to do it sculpturally i don't know if it's possible but um that would be cool to see wouldn't that be insane that would be so insane. you know what's happening there is um and it's such a it's such a like a, a, a light bulb moment for my students whenever i do that they're like what the hell and and it really underlines that point about getting things blocked in correctly and standing back from it and squinting your eyes. When you squint your eyes, you're removing your ability to see the fine details, yeah. those fine distinctions. And so start off, stand up, stand back, work 
big work fast, squint your eyes um, and really get all the stuff blocked in first. Everybody likes to get to the details. Everybody likes to use, you know, like the detail sponges and texture stamps and stuff like that. And it's, and I see it in ZBrush too. I see like, it's the, 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 the detail trap, you know, everybody gets trapped because it's kind of fun mm. to make it smooth or to give it some skin wrinkles. But like, if the form isn't there to begin with, it's not going to hang together and it can actually look like two different people. Yeah. And the form is something you can bang out quite quickly, which is what you're saying. Like get that in yes. fast. And um, yeah, that, that, that's a, a, a very good endorsement for, like you say, being stood up because then you will move around and you're not ever focusing on one spot for too long because it is an entire thing. Cause that's what, one yes. of the things I had that sort of like huge realization we did at college where we had to sculpt uh, first, it was a, a full size head and shoulders. And then we did a full size figure. So they, they, they paid a model to come in three days a week, stand there naked. Mm -hmm. We, you know, just use plumb lines to measure things and, and map out and we had to make an armature and it was like a 12 week project. And one of the things that really, really dawned on me when we were sculpting was like, when you sculpt like, you know, a, a jaw, it becomes the neck, it becomes the shoulder. They're yes. not separate things. And yes. it's odd, yes. especially if you sort of stop here with a portrait or something like you've got to imagine the thing in its entirety as a, as a single unit. And you're very aware. I think when you start slapping clay on that, you know, you, you're putting blobs in, is it in the right place? How do you know? You know what I mean? You become very, very aware of the actual manufacture of it, which is again, well, it comes back to, I think we like say doing it quickly. So you, you establish, you know, height and proportions very, very quickly because you don't need the details for those things. And as those things are established, more of your brain stops thinking about that stuff and is free to make the smaller decisions because the big one's already in place. It's not yeah, always going to be. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, in a way, you, you have to sort of cultivate a beginner mind. Beginner mind is sort of a, a concept from Zen uh, Buddhism. You have to, you know, be a tabula rasa. You have to just be a blank slate. And like we learn as children to make all these distinctions. Like this is the wall. This is a light switch. This is door and door knob. You know, this is your body. This is your head. This is your nose, your eyes. And you, you start having a very disintegrated view of the world and of your body and everything and, and seeing it as separate pieces. Um, and I think that if you can kind of cultivate that beginner mind and like look at things with sort of fresh, that fresh perspective, fresh eyes and um, stop making those distinctions. If you can erase the concept of jaw, then you're not gonna see this as a line. Nobody can see me doing that except for you two. <laughs> I'm, I'm running my 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 uh, finger down along my jawline. You're not going to see that as a jaw. You're going to see this gradual change in planes from my face to my neck. There really isn't a line there in on most people. So yeah, exactly, exactly what you're talking about, Stuart. Like the more you work with it, the more you say like, well, this is this is interesting. Like there aren't these hard lines and distinctions where I thought there were. And the best thing that you can kind of do is like stand back and squint and sort of look back and forth between what you've done and the model. That's another thing that I teach um, that I've kind of come up with. I feel like I'm talking a lot. I know this is an interview 
it's like pretending a podcast, but it's like <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm just sort of like going off. This is what um, it's great information. No, this is what this is the beauty of it. It's long form conversation. It's not like you don't get to hear this on TV or radio because people have schedules and they have times and you have to be done within three minutes and it's all soundbitey. And so the people that tend to listen to this are interested in this thing and they may well be sculpting while they're doing it. So ah, cool, cool. So come up with this technique for sculpting from reference. So there's a there's a school of of I guess you could say like a, a school of faithful representation in painting and in sculpting called um, site sizing, and that is you essentially whatever you're working on is the same size on your canvas as it is in your visual field. So you set your canvas up here, and you're looking at you know whatever you're sculpting, like the Parthenon there in the background, and you lay it out on the canvas the exact same size as it is in your visual field. And you can kind of like look back and forth between the two. And uh, you can take measurements in your visual field. You close one eye, so that removes your binocular vision. You take measurements and then you apply them to your canvas. That's sight sizing. Well, I take that one step further and I do um, flip booking. And flip booking uses your persistence of vision. I'm giving away all my secrets today. Uh, the persistence of vision is uh, it only works if the two images are close enough. So everybody's drawn a, a flip book. If you haven't, it's, you know, you, you take a stack of paper and you draw an image that's slightly different from the image on the previous page. Eventually you have a whole stack and you can flip through them. And it looks as though, you know, you've made a bouncing ball or you, you know, this is how animation works, right? Um, 24, 30, 60 frames per second, whatever it is. Well, uh, your mind is going to reject the subsequent pages if the images are different enough from each other. So you have a rooster on one page and a cow on the next page, your mind is just going to be like, oh, yeah, it's just a rooster and a cow. But if you have a rooster and then a rooster in a slightly different position on the next page, your mind says, aha, the rooster has moved, which is fascinating when you think about that, like neurologically what's happening there. Your mind is, your brain is making an assumption about what it's seeing. It's object permanence, right? It is, we're seeing the same object, it's just in a different position now. So that's sort of the underpinnings of flip book and animation and movies, right? Well, you can do that same thing with sculpting or with drawing. You don't have to trace something to, in order to trace it. You can use persistence of vision to trace it. And what I mean by that is, if you've got a good enough start on your drawing, if you've laid it out, you know, you're drawing the Parthenon, it's back there in the background, you got your canvas here, you've got it laid out, it's the same, basically the same shape and size, and that's mechanical. And, and any number of drawing courses can teach you how to do that mechanically. You got it laid out and then you close one eye, that removes your binocular vision. Now you're looking at two flat images and you flip back and forth between them with your eye, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually you can overlay one over the other. And it's a weird little mental trick that you can do. You can sort of make, turn your vision into like a little ant that's crawling along the perimeter. And you'll start to see, you know, you, you've sculpted the, or not sculpted, you've drawn the, the column, right? And, and you work your way up, you're flipping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you're working your way up the column. And then you'll see it wiggle. It'll wiggle out of true. And you're like, aha, 
I didn't get that part right because it's wiggling. And you go back and correct it. And, and now it's nice and steady and sturdy and stable. And you keep working your way up until things stop wiggling. And you can do that same thing with sculpting. You can set your reference up. That's fucking brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I'm a, I'm a problem solver. I, I love just like, you know, I try so many, I'm, way, I'm ADD, like you wouldn't believe. Like I've, I'm always trying different things. And, uh, you know, some of them stick and this one stuck and it's stuck around for 20 years now. And, and now I teach it. Um, so you close one eye, you remove your binocular vision. You've, you've printed your reference out bigger than the thing that you'd plan to sculpt. So now your reference is behind your sculpture, i.e. it's the same size as your sculpture in your visual field because of perspective. So now that you're looking at two things that are the same size, you flip your eye back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And if your sculpture is close to begin with, then you will see things move. Like you'll see the eye droop and pop back up, droop and pop back up. And you're like, aha, I sculpted the eye too low. And you go back and you change it. And when you see it stop wiggling, you know you got it right. Yep. Now, you have to have the input close enough to begin with. It can't be a rooster and a cow, right? And that part is sort of mechanical. And unfortunately, it takes a lot of training to get your sculpture to that point to begin with. And that's where I teach squint in your eyes, stand up, stand back, you know, block in the large forms first, then go back and, you know, take some rough measurements. But if you can get to that point, you can take it that last 10% with, with my uh, flip booking technique. Fantastic. That's a great, 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 that's brilliant. That is wonderful. <laughs> it's very interesting you saying about like the mechanics of drawing because I remember that, at, you know, measuring and using plumb lines and stuff in college that really helped. And it does seem like that there's two sort of ways of doing so. There's that mechanical side of things, and then there's the kind of the creative stuff. And it, but you inform it with the practical, and it's an interesting one. Do you ever? Mm. I get. I don't know. Would you? It, would you ever sculpt things like for fun that are just you know i mean you don't get too bogged down in detail almost like sketches do you sculpt sketches and let the clay inform you what the sculpture is going to yeah, be would you just always do you, would you have like an end game in 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 sight oh, so. I doodle but i don't know if you doodle with clay or that's probably the uh, easy thing to do is it <laughs> i doodle with my writing um yeah. more than anything else my sculpting is not, has never been an expression of myself. So it's interesting. A lot of people ask me about my art and, and inwardly I cringe because I'm like, this isn't my art, like nothing. And in fact, the, I'm known for hyper realism and the better a job I do, the less of me there is in it. There's no style in it. Ideally, like literally ideally, that is my job. My job is to have no style. My job is to just faithfully represent what's there, which is, you know, purely mechanical. Now, yes, when I'm teaching some sort of like a special effects thing and I do a demo and I'll just come up with something on the spot, some crazy, you know, monster type thing. That is just a matter of like slapping on some clay. I've got like a maybe rough, rough idea of something and I'll slap on some clay and I'll let that sort of inform me. Um, which brings me to another theory of mine. <laughs> <laughs> we like a theory what was that we love a theory we love it all right good theory yeah all right so, um i'll throw this one out there too why not in any face or in any creature you're going to see the and and this is just this is something i've just sort of come to from years of doing portraits 
you're going to come to see a family of shapes repeating themselves in that face. And that family of shapes is gonna be different from the family of shapes that you see in somebody else's face. So, and one of the examples I, I like to use, I have these great pictures that I've, that I've taken. You particularly see it in older people because aging, aging is like turning up the amplitude on, on a, on a waveform, right? Like you've got a waveform. It doesn't change the, um, the frequency. You can turn up the amplitude. It just means the peaks and valleys are, uh, the, the peaks are higher, the valleys are lower. If you take a face, whatever is there in your twenties and thirties, and you turn up the amplitude on it, then you get that same face in your forties and fifties and sixties. And you keep turning it up and turning it up. And you know, the, the things that are shallow go shallower. The things that are, you know, um, I've seen noses that had a tiny bit of crookedness in them in their twenties. And then by the time they're like 45, 50, you know, it's like, wow, it's kind of yeah. crooked nose now. It wasn't, <laughs> but it wasn't as noticeable back in their, back in their twenties. So it's like, it, it really, it really is like somebody just turned up the, the volume the, or the amplitude on that those features. So I use a lot of old faces to illustrate this concept of families of shapes, but you really see it in other faces too, like Tom Petty, perfect example. Everything's very fine on his face. Everything's very crisp and sharp and, and sort of small and chiseled in this really interesting way. So you'll, you'll find a shape, like in someone's face, you might find like a sort of a crescent shape or a, or a paisley shape. And then you'll start looking at their face. And the more you study it, I swear, the more of these, that shape you'll find repeated. You'll see it in the nostril. You'll see it in the corner of the eye, the corner of the mouth. You'll see it in the earlobes. You'll see it in the shape that their eyebrows make. You know, some people in limbs, for instance, like quote unquote, beautiful limbs have the, the belly of the muscle tends to be like, you know, like you can see like in the last third of the limb right here. And some people, the belly of the muscles sort of in the middle of the limb and they're sort of like thicker looking that will that will hold for their whole body like you'll never see if somebody has like sort of a thick looking arm it would be so weird to see like elegant sort of you know these elegant legs where the muscle the belly of the muscle the mass of the muscle is in the upper third that would just be bizarre so somebody's body plan has repeating shapes and their face have will have repeating shapes and so that's one of the things that I'm always looking for. And it really comes in in creature design. You know, um, there'll be, there'll be like a set of shapes. I'm going to, I'm going to mention something here that I'm sure your younger listeners have, well, have no idea what the hell French curves are. Um, uh, yeah. From technical drawing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Right. Like, and you could still got a, a box of them. Yeah. Yeah. I still got a bun bunch of them myself and there were different French curves, right? Some were like really quite round and some were sort of like sort of, I don't know, more longer and, and like um, gentler, gentler curves. Curve. Yeah. So it's those families like you know, those families of curves or families of shapes that you'll see in someone's face, mm -hmm. like, and if you look, you'll keep seeing it repeated. So when I'm doing, when I'm coming up with something just out of the blue, you know, just demonstrating, I'll pick, not consciously really, but like, you know, at this point, it's just, it's completely unconscious. You, you start making a shape and that informs, as you guys are saying that, and that'll inform 
the rest of what you do. But if it's sort of like, I don't know, if it's sort of like um, triangular, you know, drawn out shapes, it might work, but it might be really uh, also look very out of place to put <clears throat> some very bulbous thing in there. Yeah, understood. Um, and that's one of the reasons I see, in my opinion, I see so many makeups fail is because the person hasn't been true. They may have sculpted a great old man nose. And, you know, it, it, it would work on, you know, Harvey Keitel or, or something, or, but it wouldn't work on the person that they've sculpted it on. And we react to that stuff. We, we don't know that we're doing it. I'm making it express. I'm making it explicit. What I think is happening. Mm -hmm. We react to faces positively. We react to faces that have that repetition of forms, um, that family of forms. And when somebody breaks that family and they take something from somewhere else and they graft it on, it's immediately obvious, even if they did a beautiful job sculpting it, it's beautifully textured, they've, they've run the piece perfectly, they've blended their edges immaculately. You look at it and you go, oh, that's a fake nose. How do you know? How do you know that? You know because their body wouldn't have grown that way because it breaks the rule for their body. Their body has a rule. Everybody's body has a rule. Just my theory. It's frustrating because you, yeah, you, you know that you know this, but you don't realize it until it's pointed out to you. And you're absolutely right. It's kind of like yeah. fractals almost where it's like, yes, they're, they're, yes. They're, 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 um, generative. They have a, they have a, they have an algorithm and it's kind of beyond words. You can't, you can't necessarily describe it as simply as that when you're looking at it, but you don't need words when you're doing it visually because you just know you may, you may start off with triangular, but then it become refined. And then you just kind of, it becomes yeah. like a, a thing. You notice it in a shape, which is why I think once you've blocked it out, there's a whole bunch of stuff now that you don't need to concern yourself with. And then that's when yes. the clarity kind of the miss part of it. And then you're now uh, allowed to see these finer things. As long as you stay true to the overarching body plan that was in place when you blocked it out. So if it has it big and bulbous and the, the weight is in the middle instead of the top third, yeah. then you're going to want to follow that same sort of plan when you're putting in the details. Otherwise, it won't hang together. Yeah, it's like you and I, it's like one of the things that I love so much, like I love sculpting. I love sculpting, but I love thinking about what's happening and I love being able to express it and show it to people and teach people in ways that they go, oh, like, wow, that's cool. I never thought about that before. And you get that moment where you, you've reached them and you know that you've changed them forever. That's <laughs> super cool. Yeah, it is. That's amazing. That's very cool. And like you were saying at the beginning, it's like observing. It's like really observing. When you see good sculpture, the thing that it's almost like a, a pang and like a jealousy mm. thing because you realize that they've seen something that you know is there, but for some reason, truth, you kind of know you have seen it because they've rendered it. They've obviously seen it thoroughly in a way that yeah. they put it on there and you can emphasize certain things. For, but uh, It's truth. It's truth. It's, you know, I love those light bulb moments. Yeah. Yeah. Are they great? Yeah. I, I think Stuart, what you're talking about is, is if somebody has captured, there's an essence and a truth that you know when you see it you're like oh yes yeah that is they've captured some truth 
faithfully and it is like you say it's like almost heartbreaking it is, when you it's see a it. weird oh, thing God. and it's like finding a, a room in your house that you didn't know was there like holy shit this here was the whole time but i just didn't know it was there you know yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and what does that mean and what what else is there that i didn't know about when well, you didn't take a couple of those to kind of like it's like a touch lighting a touch paper now you're like oh my god what else can i find out and it's like there's no limit to the things you can find out and then you become like you say where you're just like a kid in a candy store because there's you know it's just to be discovered one of my favorite things about sculpture classes has been when I have students who have never touched clay in their life immediately find out that they have a skill, a mad skill mm. that they had no idea was inside That's them. So cool. That that is so cool to see. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really weird. You know, this this one. It's like one of the things that shocked the hell out of me was so I left art school. I was actually asked to leave art school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I went to glass Rhode, something. I would raise it right now. That's right. <laughs> I went to Rhode Island School of Design, um, and I, I just great school. Oh, I, I didn't think so. <laughs> I, I um, yeah, I, I had a poor opinion of. of was it a lot of abstract expressionism and huge amounts of crit where everyone's sort of wandering around with their chins and their fists talking? You know, it was, well, at the time, neo-Dadaism was, was really like the, the thing. Um, you know, students would bring in just the most, like literally a hubcap and nail it to a wall. And, you know, I'd be there, I'd, I'd worked and worked and worked and, on stuff that was like high concept stuff. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing figurative stuff at the time. I was doing like more, I was trying, I was really trying to get into the spirit of it, you know, like high concept stuff, performance art. One of the students I remember uh, took a, a very expensive shirt of his and like stretched it on a canvas frame and called that his piece. And I knew he did it literally that morning because he had been partying in New York um, all weekend and put it on the wall and they, the whole class had to crit it. And I'm like, why are we wasting our time critting something, you know, that this person literally just stuck on a wall when some of us have been working quite hard and actually, you know, deserve to be critted. So yeah, it was, it was disheartening to, to say the least. And uh, you can argue, you know, eyes and art, art is in the eye of the beholder. Art shouldn't, doesn't have to be difficult, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there are real value judgments that can be made and should be made. Honestly. I think so, because it, the danger is that you then, as a concept, you just end up denigrating competency in things and absolutely and people off. And, and it sh th 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 there is a place for that. I, I remember similar feelings at art college. I went to Wimbledon and they had a, a fine art section and a theater section. And in the theater section, mm. I would have to learn, like we went to um, an automotive college one day uh, a week to learn how to weld because we were going to weld armatures and they had to function. And then you would see yeah. like these welded sculptures, which was just scraps of metal welded together. And I'd look at them and go, well, the gas mix was completely off because it's just spitting everywhere. So it wasn't competently <laughs> welded. That may have been part of that. I don't know, but I looked at it and like, so my ability to weld wasn't valued there. Yes. And it kind of seemed like, but that's a shame because you could take that good information of how to weld correctly and then do something structurally sound that is also creative, yes. but it seemed like, oh, you either have competency and craft or you're very high concept. You cannot have both. Absolutely. And I like, did that. You nailed it. There's, I, I, 
I had I had one professor at, at RISD, this guy, um, Jack, Jack, Jack Matthews, I think was his name. Um, and this is one, the one takeaway that I really valued from that school. He taught the way the thing is what it is, is what it is. I've never forgotten that. And so if you hang a piece on a wall with, you know, thumbtacks, make no mistake, those thumbtacks are part of your art. And if it is hot glued together and hot glue is pouring out of the seams of your piece, like don't expect your audience to sort of edit it out in, in their head. Like, no, hot glue is part of your piece. And so that's where craft, you know, I've always been really into the highest level of craft possible because then your message gets across with no crosstalk. There's, there's no, you know, signal to noise ratio. There's no noise. If you can eliminate all noise, then it's just a hundred percent signal. Um, so are you saying what you want to be saying? Well, if it's important that there's hot glue, you know, visible in your piece, then yes, you're saying what you want to be saying. And, and that's what you're, you know, with, if the gas mix is off and it's just spattering everywhere, the weld looks horrendous, then make no mistake, that's part of your piece. And, you know, and unfortunately, and then we can, we can talk about this and it's, you know, you wind up with concept people who hire crafts, you know, like Jeff Koontz, right? He just has an inkling of an idea and he's basically just like, a, you know, made a bunch of money on Wall Street and thought it would be cool to commission some art and call it his own, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Like somebody got in touch with me to have me sculpt a giant hand and, um, and it just pissed me off. I'm like, that, it's not yours. You know, then we get into the, the conversation of authorship. Yeah. Um, because you're hiring people to do, to do your work for you. And it's a, you know, there's gray areas like everything else, but if you literally haven't touched the piece yourself, I don't really know how you can call it your work, but, uh, learning the craft, I think is really, really important because that's going to inform how you, uh, conceive of the piece to begin with, because you'll know the, the possibilities and limitations of whatever medium, you know, you're working in. I want to take what you and Stuart have just just been talking about, uh, you know, with the, the welding and how taking that information and applying it elsewhere to something that you talked about a little while yeah. ago about when you're when you're sculpting, say you're you're doing something for McFarlane or Marvel or, or Hasbro, you're you're doing a job. You're being paid to sculpt a likeness, and you 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 have to be basically neutral. It's none of you is going into mm. it, even though a lot of you is going into that. Um, have a little discussion about where is something, when, where do you draw the line between commercial art and fine art? Because to me, you know, looking at, at the pieces that you do, you know, your little Matt Damon head, it's freaking spot on. I mean, you put some color on that and that's, that's Matt Damon. You should try that one of these days. You know, you're, 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 you're David, you're David Bowie from, from Labyrinth. It's like, holy shit. That's exactly what it looked like. Um, to me, that is every bit commercial art as well as fine art because you captured the reality of, of that moment in time from, from film making it fine art, but it's also a commercial venture because it was being, maybe not the boy one per se, but you know, your, your, your sports figures um, our people will pay good money to put that into a collection. Is that fine art or is that commercial art? 
and it's you know because I've we've had discussions. I've had discussions um, from from college. You know, my my mentor in college uh, was an abstract watercolors named Richard Clark, uh, who did just beautiful stuff. This is when I was wrestling with do I do I go to medical school or do I follow follow my my path because I do what I do because I can't not do it. And, you know, I felt you know, the, the whole medical school, that's a, another conversation for another day. But, you know, Richard helped me find my path when, you know, I had the last dozen or so years, I had been fir- firmly convinced that medicine was my path. You know, maybe it's maybe it's because I'd been in and out of emergency rooms ever since I was a, a kid, you know, and you know, um, so I figured, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. I think everything happens for a reason, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. You know, our experiences f- inform who we who we really are. Absolutely. And, you know, comes back to, you know, I was 12 before I think I realized that not everybody could draw because my mother is a painter and a sculptor and my dad did stained glass and wood carving. So, you know, I grew up around that stuff yeah. and I just naturally thought everybody can do yeah, this. That's your so paradigm, I, isn't it? I need to do something else. Your paradigm, Cause you were yeah. made aware of those things. It's like you were saying, Adam, about like, you know, don't call this a jaw. You, you, you are taught to, to differentiate things. And I guess what you're saying there, Todd, is that you grew up being familiar with these things. So it never occurred to you to not include them in the way you see the world. And so you kind of effortlessly practice exactly. them. And then you realize, oh shit, you don't have those at home or. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would write short stories and then illustrate them. You know, that's that's that was my childhood. Yeah, I, I have a different experience. I think um, I always grew up. <clears throat> I grew up with. Um, I was always the artist, like <laughs> with like a capital capital T A G um, at school, and so I was always acutely aware of my difference in in that regard i don't know i think in a weird way it i had to learn to like i didn't want to be that different and so i had to learn to sort of really make quite express what i found valuable about in other people um because i didn't want to be like put on a pedestal in that way because i it's othering right like it separates me from my peers and I didn't want that. Like that's a sad place to be. That's kind of a lonely place to be. And so I was very humble about um, my skills and I always tried to like, yeah, I guess just like I said, like be very explicit and express about what I found valuable in like in in my peers and my friends. I think there's there's a lot of value in that. I think because if you are, uh, especially if you're, in some way rendering what you see either through short stories or your drawing your sculpting you are observing so you're in you're you're completely engaged for periods of time in uh things other than yourself and there's a lot of things nowadays i think more so nowadays with social media and stuff a lot of people are very preoccupied with themselves and how they look and how they have a lot of navel gazing mm. and think mm. about the act of, of of acquiring information in order to render it in some way that stops you from having the time to do that so it can be quite what's the word i'm looking for kind of therapeutic to be able to really engage with the outside world to the extent where you can deconstruct it and re- reconstruct it in your own 
vision or your own way, whether it's like you say, a ruthless rendition, or you want to emphasize something, but that, I think that's harder to do, isn't it? Because you've really got to understand it to, to eloquently emphasize the right things. Could we, do you want to talk a little bit about CX-5? Is that still happening? Is that a, still a thing? Uh, we, we can talk. No, uh, basically the, the, sh- the short answer is probably not a thing. I, unfortunately, like a cool footnote in the history of sculpting materials, but I never used it, but I saw pictures of it. I saw video of it being used. Yeah. And I, I wanted to use it. I, I was, and, and when I heard that you were playing around with the idea of, of doing a, a PLA yeah. filament with it, I was like, oh, this is going to change everything. Yeah, it would have, you know, just ran into, unfortunately ran into um, the realities of trying to do business these days. And this is kind of maybe a different discussion, but the American dream not being what it used to be, like through dint of, you know, hard work and talent and just sheer aggressiveness, you could, you could make it, you could just, you know, that was the, that was the dream. And I think the thing that I really proved to myself seven years of just, and I, I grew a company, you know, I had a very small amount of investment up front and worked just incredibly hard and basically never paid myself. And I had a partner at the time, you know, we were life partners as well as, uh, you know, partners in the business and uh, both of us, you know, she, she worked incredibly hard. Both of us worked incredibly hard. And the thing that I proved, I think, to myself, and I know this is like an old aphorism, right? It takes money to make money. But I think that's never been truer than it is now. I, I think that uh, it takes a lot of money to get a venture off the ground and healthy, Mine was always off the ground, but it wasn't healthy in that I wasn't paying myself. And I was working so hard that I literally wound up in the hospital. And, you know, I discovered my limits. Like, that's not something I ever want to do again. No. And it's a, it lived in this funny area where the return on the investment wasn't appealing enough for investors to really jump at it. Like, you know, big investors, they want a they want million dollar investment to begin with, they don't want to touch anything that's smaller than a million dollars. It's just not worth it to them. And they want it to be a 5X return or a 10X return. And no art material is going to be a 5X return. It's just not going to be. And small investors, they didn't, they didn't really have the the capital that we were looking for and they want too much in return. You know, they want to own some, you know, preposterously large part of it. And so you fall into that strange sort of like, area where there there aren't really investors that match what your need is you neither need it to be much smaller or much bigger yeah and that becomes like you say it's like a rule of how it's going to be and it's like no one's going to do this unless they sink this much money in it and then when they do it's like but it can't make that much but it's yeah it's like there's this middle ground that should exist and perhaps did once but doesn't now and it just there must be so many small businesses and really good ideas that are just they're just not going to get the wing you know the wind under their wings because of how it's all set up very frustrating yeah but you found your limits it's absolutely and you like anything you're going to respond and you just come back and now you'll be doing presumably you're doing other things you're not gonna you know you get knocked on your ass by stuff but you come back you're like well you know still got this energy and you know honestly like that's if the right person came along and they said you know hey let's get the band back together essentially to me you know this is this is sort of my last 
I'm, I'm basically taking it out back and shooting it in the head this year. Uh, unfortunately, there's, you know, there's still some conversations happening, sort of back burner conversations happening. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a big getting that machine going again. And, and by the way, like I built all the machinery, literally built the machinery, built and designed the machinery for the production line. You know, I wound up, you know, like I was programming processor, you know, it was like digitally controlled every aspect of this thing. I literally built the machinery for it. So it was all one of a kind prototype machinery. You know, that's the kind of thing that you have to do. I don't think I've ever met anybody as crazy and tenacious as me and, and willing to put that much on the line and that much work into it. Like we're talking every day is a 14 hour day, you know, or, or 12. If you've never done a 14 hour day in your life, like you can't imagine back to back to back. And some of them no sleep, you know, you're, you're building the machinery yourself because to buy the, to, to buy the correct equipment, just to buy one of these damn things. Yeah. We're talking 350 to $500,000, but I can make it for, you know, $5,000 or $10,000, but it's a ton of my know-how and time. And, you know, if you don't have the money, then all you have is your time. Mm. The only way to buy your own time is to not sleep and not eat a lot. <laughs> yeah. So you're paying for it. In way. <laughs> and it's, it's different. It's different from just working like, you know, a 14 hour day for a job job because yeah. you don't have a guaranteed end point. There's no, res- you know what I mean? Yes. You, you, you're, there's that whispering voice in the back of your head, like, well, and you've got to drive on despite that or because of it maybe, but you don't let that yeah. beat you up. So my previous point of like, how do you get people to move past when they get stuck in a sculpture? It's like, I guess the thing is to experience harder things <laughs> so that the yeah. very, very small <laughs> aberration yeah. easily overcome. <laughs> like if that's not, yeah, that's pants, true. then yeah. you haven't, you've got a good life. <laughs> Puts it in perspective for sure. Yeah. And I think we do live in an age, as you were saying earlier, Stuart, where um, people expect things to work out of the box. And I, I don't know. It's funny. I've had, I've had two experiences. Like a lot of people like to, to bang on, you know, the millennials, like they don't have a work ethic, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, don't, I have not found that to be true. I have found my, my students, some of them, um, it's a mix, right? Like, I think there's, you go back 20 years, you're going to find a mix. You go back 30, 40 years, you're going to find a mix. There's always going to be lazy people. And there's always going to pe- be people who just crush it yes. and just knock it out of the park. Yeah. I really haven't found millennials to be lazy at all, but they do have different sets of expectations. I, I think they're, they're more than willing to put in a ton of work, but doing things by hand versus, you know, finding the, the app to do the thing is, is sort of a, a slightly, like I've seen like a little bit of shift, you know, like I've seen these gorgeous pieces of, of uh, illustration that look like they were watercolored. I mean, they look for all the world like they were watercolored. And it turns out they were done on an iPad in Procreate because they have watercolor brushes. And it's just, it pains me because when, yeah, yeah, they don't have the knowledge in themselves of how to actually watercolor something. And when that app is no longer supported, they won't be able to make that thing anymore. Yeah. And everybody just relies on, you know, like ZBrush, like, oh my God, you can do incredible things in it. And they're going to come out with something even better, you know, next year. Like some, there's going to be something that will, you know, eat 
ZBrush's breakfast, right? And uh, until what? Like, what's the end? What's the end game? Like, until honestly, human operators are no longer needed well, to create the thing. It's funny because you said I've seen adverts on Facebook for like AI art, and I was thinking, if wow. you're a programmer or you you're coming up with the algorithms to create that. I can completely understand why you would be compelled to want to create those things, but it's a weird one where you go, Oh good. Another thing that a human being doesn't need to do is like, mm. you know, part of part of the joy of eating is eating. I don't eat just to get nourishment. And if you could condense all the calories and nutrition into a, you know, a pill, would you do that? And it's kind of like, well, I kind of like eating and the preparation and the, you know, there's a lot you can do with it. It's not just about the acquisition of nutrients. So, and it's a right. bit like that about the art. Absolutely. It's like, don't, I don't know. It's a bit of a weird one, but it raises an interesting question. I don't have an answer for that, but yeah, I'm, I yeah. think the process is part of the joy. Yes, it, is. it is. It's the meaning that's, that's, it's like you say, it's like you render something sculptural and, and you go through that, that, that experience of sculpting something and, and, and trying to make something. And then it's, well, it's like I said earlier, it's, we do what we do because we yeah. can't not do it. You know, that's what, what you're saying is that's the whole well, thing. Well, it's that desire it's, to bypass the you know, toil of doing it. And I'm kind of like, yeah, you can bypass the toil of doing certain things, but there's actually mm. huge value in doing them. You know, like we have cars, so we don't have to walk 20 miles to the store anymore. But if you could walk 20 miles a day, you would have benefits that, you wouldn't do you know what I mean so there are there are certain things that you can yeah. incorporate in your existence which don't just rely on whatever the, the convenience is I shall adopt it wholesale um, I'm writing an article right now about what certain powerful uh, aspects of deep learning are doing to the industry the special effects industry and what I it's sort of a like where is this all going? I was hanging out with, with somebody in a shop. We just happened to be both be in the same shop at that, that day. And we don't really cross paths that frequently in real life. And uh, he's, we got on this conversation about, you know, the old ways and, and um, versus, you know, new stuff. And he said to me, where is it all going to end? And I, I went home thinking about that. And I was like, yeah, the answer to that's not good. And so I'm, I'm writing an article right now about that very thing. I don't know when I'll be done with it, but with these generative adversarial networks that you give them data sets and they, they learn on them and they create something, it's, it's absolutely breathtakingly photorealistic. And then there's, you know, the deep fake technology that can replace somebody's face in real time. There's all of this stuff. How does it all come together? And the answer is, Essentially, it's going to remove human operators. And when the AIs become like an AI can write, can you know, score a piece of music just almost as well as a, as a human, but soon better. And an AI, you know, like it's all data sets, right? Like what we respond Skynet, to. Skynet, baby. Yeah. What we respond to visually is not a very complicated data set. Like we, you know, we like certain compositions. We like certain colors next to each other. That's very learnable for an AI, very learnable, it's eminently doable. And when an AI can make a piece of art better than we can, which is coming, like make no mistake, that is absolutely definitely coming. What does it mean to be human at that point? Because to be human is like one of the, I would say like the, the sort of core things is to express ourselves. We all want to express ourselves. And when something can express itself or it can, you know, 
do a better job of painting that painting or writing a, a moving poem or... I don't remember where I read it, but I, I read somewhere that um, human evolution will ultimately become where, to the point where we are no longer, literally no longer human because we have become, we have become the AI. Essentially, you know, we're already getting microchip now, and you know, it's, you know, um, titanium hip joints and, you know, bionic this and that, you know, pacemakers and all of these electro things that are controlling um, blood pressure and you know, different different aspects of our of our biology. That ultimately we will stop being biological creatures. You're still doing stuff and commissions. You're teaching as well, so oh, yeah. you're keeping yourself busy. I'm always busy. Yeah, I. Uh, so I'm I'm doing commissions. I'm, I do some private commissions, but I don't tend to um, I don't tend to really work with you know, like private collectors or, or stuff all that much. Um, I tend mostly to work with companies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, doing doing all kinds of sculpting. I actually just finished teaching a toy design class that I designed for Laguna College of Art and Design. And I'm doing- That, that, that was fun. Yeah, uh, it was weird because it was, you know, it's, everything's remote right now. So teaching remotely, and I'm teaching private lessons, private sculpting lessons remotely, and that's weird. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you're used to, as a teacher, you, you're used to being able to go up to someone's sculpture and be like, no, no, right here. Yes, yeah, such and a tactile thing. It's horrible, isn't it? And you always wouldn't <laughs> it's reach inherently, out and, and do you touch, find but you can't. Yeah, you can't reach in, you can't touch, you can't point. So what I'll do sometimes is I'll take, I have a two camera system here. I'll take the camera, point it at the screen, and then I'll touch the part of their sculpture on the screen that I want them to, and it works out all right. I mean, it's, it's surprising. It's actually quite surprising how far I've gotten with my students remotely. And one of the beautiful things about it is they can be anywhere in the world. So, you know, they're in uh, Buenos Aires, you know, it's okay. It doesn't matter. I can, I can teach them if they're in France. It's okay. So yeah, I'm doing that. I'm private lessons, teaching uh, at college commissions. I'm also coaching, you know, coaching people like it's kind of more like co career coaching and also just critiquing their work. Like a lot, you know, people come to me and they'll, it's less lessons, but it's more like, how can I take this and make it so good that I get hired? Mm -hmm. So coaching. And then I'm about to launch a Patreon. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to see how that goes. Awesome. I've, you know, like I've had people for years saying that they wanted me to do a Patreon or Gumroad or Twitch. And um, I just never been sure how my, like, what would I do for it? I finally figured it out. I think I'm going to have people like join me for some live sculpting, like watch me sculpt some stuff on Patreon. Once a month, I'm going to give away some piece of art. And, um, and I'm just going to post a lot of behind the scenes stuff, uh, like stuff that I've worked on in the past, stuff I'm working on now, and like be more interactive. One of the things I really want to do this year is put myself out there so that people can kind of get a sense of who I am. Because I think I've kind of, for a long time, just been some, like I'm a very much, I've always been kind of a behind the scenes person, not like a, you know, I don't think people have that good a sense of what my personality is or who I am. So well, I think they might get to have a little better idea after they listen to this. Yeah, and I, I hope it's a good idea. I hope, I hope, I hope it's good. <laughs>
I think uh, that, okay, you know, you, you. like you say, you, 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 you've kind of been your own boss for all this time and you run things the way you run them and, and it's working out and it's like, you know, that's, that's what you should do because that's who you are. And, you know, that's what you'll be. That's the authentic you that people will see if they meet you at a trade show or if, or if it's mm -hmm. an online thing, do you have uh, any details of your Patreon? We should tell just a little thing about Patreon in case you didn't know what a Patreon is. Cause people listening to this, maybe, you know, I, I've, there's a couple oh, yeah. of podcasts I support with Patreon because, you know, I get a lot out of them and it's just a way of like, it's like a digital tip jar, I suppose is one way of looking at it or. or, or it can be, I think that's for like, so I guess, so they're taking their name from patron and who, who knows, <laughs> who, who knows what the, it's a portmanteau of patron, patron and like, you know, something else. So the patron idea is that, that, um, you know, some wealthy patron would, would support some artist and the artist would, and typically it was like religious, right? Like it was the church, but in this case, it's crowdsourced patrons supporting an artist, but it's less about like so the tip jar is just like, hey, we like what you do. Just keep doing it. And they put, you know, a dollar in. I think that we live in a culture that we tend to want more back and are less interested in supporting causes because they're worth supporting. You know, you'll support, you'll support that charity if you get the cool coffee cup, you know. And so it's a little bit more give and take. And I'm trying to think of, you know, ways that I can make that make that a, um, a really cool and fun and worthy exchange for people. No way. Do you have details of your Patreon yet or we can put links in or do you want to get back to us when that's up and running? So I'm, I'm hopefully going to get it up running um, tomorrow. Okay. But yeah, I was like, um, these guys are, then we're going to chat with me. I better have this thing. No, no. Because I've been chewing on it for months. <laughs> Realistically, it's probably at least a week away from coming out this this book. Oh, good. So, so you got plenty of time. <laughs> so we, we can put the link in for that. But that would be awesome, I think. Like, I think everybody thinks I just do portraits and sports sculptures. But um, I do a lot of different kinds of art. And so who knows what it's going to be. But it's going to be cool. I know that. Whatever it is each month. And then um, also exclusive looks behind the scenes and at past and current projects. And I think I'm gonna to put together some sort of a Discord community where people can like talk to me a little bit more. It'll be a more, more interactive. I'm also gonna be doing coaching and critiques of people's work. Uh, so it'll be an opportunity for people to like further develop their, their skills and get some feedback from me. I love the coaching. Coaching is just so cool. Like you can probably tell, like I have a lot of opinions about things and you know like how how sculptures are like can be impactful and whatnot yeah but you clearly also think a lot about what you're discussing and i think that's really important and breaking it down and having a really good not detached but you're able to detach from it in order to see it and assess it which is i think important particularly when it's work because if you are a sculptor and you produce something and i say look adam i did this you are going to show this with a whole bunch of, of, of inbuilt biases and, and, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah. blinkers up about certain things that you just, you, you, you will see certain things that you shouldn't and you won't see certain things that you really should. And it will be really good that you can have someone like yourself that understands that and also understands the pragmatic nature of seeing form and shape and being able to put those things together. And you really do need a one-to-one -one, really, even if it's only five minutes, it's enough to kind of set you on the right track because otherwise you just end up folding yourself over and over so again. So much so. Yeah. I've, I've had, uh, there's a student I was mentoring 
for a number of months. And we do get into that, that stuff where I'm like, you really dig, I love digging deep into what's happening with the figure in motion and ways that you can really get in there and really make that, sell that motion and make it really realistic and think about it. And I like to give people like ways that they can think about the different forms of the body and the weight distribution and keep it from being really stiff and stale and, and get it really uh, to be a more dynamic composition. You know, that's the stuff that makes pieces really stick out and really stand head and shoulders above others. And sometimes it's a simple tweak. You know, it's really, it's possible in ZBrush, unfortunately, particularly to take a really nicely constructed T-pose body and put it in some pose that's like, at first glance, it's like kind of convincing, especially if it's like the surface details and whatnot are well rendered and, you know, the cloth, the drapery is good. And, but then, you know, you look at it in particular, I, I, I like to look at things and I'm like, yeah, that's not really what the body would do though. You know, when you're giving a karate kick, like actually the other arm drops down and this one comes up to your face. You know, it's, if you're throwing a thing like, oh, actually, no, you twist the other way or you're walking like, no, you, you've got the wrong hip dropped. I know exactly what you mean. Um, I, the, the way I, I would sort of liken it is I remember what I went, I was working on a film. I won't say what it was, but I remember seeing the visual effects department. We were looking around all this stuff and they had all these beautifully rendered sculptures of stuff that the visual effects department had done of these creatures. But you mm. could tell that the people who used it knew the software really well, but they weren't sculptors. You could yeah. just see in how they'd done it, that they spent a lot of time getting the lighting looking cool and all that kind of, it had the sheen of, and it would oh, yeah. probably impress investors and all that kind of stuff. But you look at it and you go, yeah, but I just don't believe it. And you'd see like a thumbnail sketch of like Carlos Huante's done or something and go, that's the stuff right there. That's just, you know, Absolutely. pencil lines. That's what, that's, that's. Because he did it with pencil and he did, and he knows his stuff. Yeah. And he's a super cool guy too. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's, and I see that, I see that in people who are um, well-regarded in the industry. Um, you know, I look at their stuff and I'm like, no, that's not, no, you didn't. But like, it's, it feels to me like such a fine distinction, but, and this is going to sound, all right, this is going to sound like hubris here. So everybody, please forgive me for saying this, but if I'm, there's certain sculptures I'm thinking of in particular that like are sculpted by people who are well-regarded where let's say somebody, it would be possible, somebody could come in and sculpt it with those things in mind and side by side, they would look very similar, but I think, I hope, I hope this is true, that people would react to this other sculpture that, that the new person came in and sculpted. Like, so say there's like a fawn, you know, like uh, dancing, let's say. And I look at that sculpture, I'm like, no, you've got the wrong, the wrong shoulders up. Like that is not, if you were gonna do that movement, you'd have the other shoulder up. Yeah. And so I would go in and I would that. sculpt it. <laughs> and and I, I hope this is true. My hope is that people would react fav more favorably to the sculpture that I did, not even be even able to articulate why. There's just a correctness to it. You look at it and you go, yeah. And it's that thing that you were talking about, Stuart. You look at it and somebody's captured some essential truth and it's missing from the other one for these people who are, you know, crushing you know doing some stuff in zbrush and it's so impressive and they've got you know thousands of likes and shares and it's like yeah but you've missed 
the essential truth of yeah. that thing. It's like you've let the software do the heavy lifting and, and, and your absence of effort is actually showing when you see something yeah. that has been done by effort. But you need to see a lot of that in order to compare it. And I think... But, you know, also, I used to love to like bang on software, you know, pixel jockeys, I would call them, um, versus anybody who's doing things in the real world. But I don't think that's necessarily the problem. Like, I've seen people struggle and like work incredibly hard on something in real life mm. with real clay and still get the wrong shoulder up oh, totally. and still get the wrong hip dropped. So you can make the mistake in any medium. It's not, it's not the fault necessarily of the software being easy. It is easier to make the mistake. I will, I will give you that. It's easier to make. And also because it's something like ZBrush, it's so powerful. You can, you can move the body like it's nothing, literally like it's nothing. You could never do that in clay. So you can make a bigger mistake faster in ZBrush. Yeah. A big core, like deeply problematic mistake very quickly in ZBrush where it's <laughs> odd. Been, been there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, that feeling. But yeah, no, I think it's just because you can work so quickly and things like symmetry. It's just the potential yeah. to be lazy exists in a way that you don't get with clay because the other shoulder isn't sculpting itself, you know, so you have. Right, right. That's so true. <laughs> so it's not that ZBrush makes you lazy. It's just that you, you can't be as lazy unless you have ZBrush. So you'll certainly work hard, but I guess you don't notice the benefits after a while because you get used to having it. And then it's like when you pick up, clay, yeah. like, oh my God, the other side, I've got to sculpt it as well. I just, I'm so used to it. Just <laughs> that other shoulder is not going to That's hilarious. And it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> which is a nightmare um i'll put yeah. you on the spot we, we're coming up to about two hours so i think i should probably wind this oh my god i know it's okay, been awesome yeah. um if i'm listening to this and i'm somebody that's seen some of your pictures and i'm like oh my god this is amazing i want to start sculpting what would you recommend to start out what, what would be like a low cost way of just getting my hands dirty and just start sculpting I'll give you a, a thing that I always recommend, for example, rather than just leave you hanging there, I would say to people, yeah, cool. try doing self-portraits, getting a block of clay and a board and just doing like your face, just self-portraits, because you will always show up and just spend half an mm. hour, you know, just trying to sculpt yourself. And that's a way of getting your hands dirty. So you start doing it, you know, um, I don't know. Cool. Good answer. Thanks. <laughs> I didn't want to leave you. I didn't want to give you just like, Oh God, I don't know. But what, what would you say was, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never at a loss for words. I'm as you can probably tell. Well, I think it, for me, it would depend on what they wanted to sculpt. You know, if they want to sculpt, you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't want to sculpt faces or faces aren't that important to them. So if they want to sculpt like a, a person in in action, you know, they want to make the a daredevil, you know, sculpture or whatever. Um, so that's a very different answer than, you know, if you want to get good at portraits. So I guess I could answer both of them, but that would be twice as long an answer, which, you know, what, what, what do you think? Like um, somebody, somebody just wants to get into sculpting for the first time. Well, I think time. that's a very important point that you raise is like, but what, what is it that you actually want? Is it, is it just the satisfaction of having created something or do you, it's a, it's a, a uh, of utility to analyze what it is you want. I think you're, that's a really good point. Like what, what is it you want to see? Like what would make you happy if it's on the bench that you were responsible for? Because like you say, not everyone's going to be yeah. into portraits or that that's me throwing on my bias. It's like, you could be wanting to sculpt armor or make models of, 
don't know. Or, or yeah, animals. Or, 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 yeah. or wounds. <clears throat> we get that a lot as people wanted to, to do realistic gore. Oh, and that's the other thing. Yeah, I think the same. You know, one of the things that I was really surprised by when I first started teaching, um, you know, any sort of special effects sculpting is you have a life cast sitting there already. Like there's, a, there's already an answer. The answer is right in front of you it's that person's face and it's right there. You don't have to do any work at all. All you have to do is apply little bits. I can never stress this enough, small little bits, keep it subtle of clay to that thing that's already there. And I've seen people who could sculpt prosthetics like you wouldn't believe on a face, but couldn't sculpt the face to begin with, you know what I mean? So they could sculpt a new nose or they could sculpt like uh, a swollen eye or, you know, they could sculpt various parts of the face, like a cleft lip, but they couldn't sculpt. They didn't know. I, I don't even know if I would say necessarily that they, that they, oh, this is a bit harsh. I, part of me wants to say they don't, they're not actually. Oh, we, we've never been harsh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not my nature to be not, to be harsh. Um, I'll leave that up to you, to you guys. Well, there's firm but, and there's mean. They're two different things. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I mean has no place no. in the world, really. There's no call for anybody to be mean. I don't think. But that's me. It's not real. It's not like sculpting. Sculpting. It's not like you. You don't. You're not. You're not sculpt. You're not creating something from scratch. You don't know the face the way that you know the face when you create it from scratch. Mm. So there is sculpting appliances, application things. And I think, and this harkens back to what I was saying about the rhythm of the face. If you're going to do more than just sculpt a swollen eye, if you're gonna sculpt something that actually changes someone's face significantly, then I think it's more important that you are familiar with actual real sculpting and the rhythm of, of the face, you know, the different shapes and forms and the family of forms that can possibly exist in a face. Those are the things you need to know <laughs> need to know so that you don't wind up creating a nose that doesn't fit on that person's face. I think if somebody wants to learn sculpting in general, like say they're gonna have a fine art career or they're gonna have a commercial art career where they wanna sculpt um, you know, anything from characters, creature maquettes for movies, concept stuff, collectible figures, then I think the actual sculpting is much more important. And I think that if you're gonna, if you're, what you wanna sculpt is more body-based, then it can be as simple as like, you know, a block of firm plastiline and some armature wire. And if what you really want to sculpt is faces, I think I would, I would even start simpler than a self-portrait. I think self-portrait is like, that's some next level stuff right there. I think I would start with like, one of the things that I like to do is I tell people to go out and find find a thing. Like if you want to sculpt action figures, go find an action figure and copy it. I think copying is like a download of information. It is unbelievable how much information. When you copy, if you copy the master's drawings, like Michelangelo's sketches, you learn so much. You get in his head. If you have like a cool little bust of, you know, uh, Martin Luther King or whoever, you know, he came to mind because I was thinking about Martin Luther King just the other day. If you, uh, if you have a bust of whomever, a little bust, try to copy that. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier because it's not going to move. 
It's not a face you're super familiar with and think that you know, but you don't really. There's no coloration to, to be removed. Like it's already monochromatic. Those right there, that's like, you know, instantly removes so much of the difficulty of the task. And then it'll, it'll stay there for, you know, hours and hours and hours, days and days, months and months um, while you tinker with it and uh, it'll never get tired. So, and it can be really cheap, you know, it can be anything. It could be anything. You could go to the thrift store and find something for 15 bucks and, uh, and bring it home and just try to copy it. The more things you copy, it almost doesn't even matter what it is. If you can faithfully copy it, you are learning. That is some sound advice, I think. That's fantastic. Cool. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited. That's awesome. Quite informative. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I, I know I, I, I can't speak for our listeners, but I, I have learned a lot. Oh, cool. No, That's fantastic. Really I'm so glad. No, it's been a very, very cool chat. I just feel I'm very conscious of the time because we, we spent so long trying to get this organized and then the things weren't working the links were being weird yeah, and everything. Yeah. so uh it's no worries yeah i'm so sorry to have put you through that at the beginning but uh it didn't <laughs> seem to have dampened your spirits so that's that's awesome no not at all it takes a lot to dampen my spirits believe me i hope we'll get a chance to to do a part two at some point because you know, we've I think we've only scratched the surface of what we could be talking about that our, our I listeners agree. would oh, cool. enjoy. I think so. I think cool. maybe we'll give it a while for your Patreon to sort of kick in and then we'll come back and check in with you again in the future, if that's okay. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. Amazing. Cool. Thank you. Adam, thanks a ton, man. My God, thank thank you guys. Thank you so much for uh, you know having me on. I really, really appreciate it. I'm honored. Oh, man, it was awesome. It was so much fun. Well, we're, well, we're thrilled, thrilled to be able to do this. And, you know, it's... The day has day started out pretty good and kind of went south a little bit, and this has picked it right oh, back good. up. Oh, again. fantastic! Um, this this has turned into exactly what I hoped it would. So that was brilliant. fantastic. I'm so glad. I'm really glad it could be a part of this. I really appreciate it. I thought that was awesome stuff, and I'm very very grateful to Adam. For, for for us you know for us to get a chance to chat definitely makes me want to try sculpting something small to see it does yeah i mean how do you feel about sculpting things in miniature versus sculpting them digitally and then printing them because it's going to save your eyes in a way it's the same process absolutely though. yeah yeah i don't know but there's something about actually sculpting small that is interesting i mean there's something really nice about like he says there's nothing quite like getting your hands on clay you know and actually moving it around exactly yeah I I, I still love digital work, but there's nothing like the tangibility of clay, whether it's monster clay or Chavant or wed clay. Yeah. It's just nice to get it under your fingernails and have to pick it out. Have you used the um, monster clay gray? Yes, I have. Is it any good? How is it? Yeah, I like it a lot. I'm going to have to try some. It's very nice. It's it's got a slightly different texture than than the brown stuff, Mm -hmm. than than the rust colored stuff. Um, but I like it very much, and it's really close in color to the smooth-on um, freeform air. Right. Okay. So, so if you if you got a core made out of that, or the the um, their gel coat, the uh, the epoxy coat gray mm-hmm. is a really nice gray. It's very close to the to the monster clay gray. So got clients that can't distinguish well between 
the two different colors, it, it blends nicely. Mm. Uh, I'm working on a prosthetic uh, inspired by the, the Dr. Poison makeup from the first Wonder, Wonder Woman movie with Gal Gadot. Mm-hmm. And I did that in the monster clay gray. And oh, nice. It was real. It, it, it actually polishes up very nicely. Oh, that's cool. That's a nice quality, actually, especially if you yeah. powder, I guess you can get a nice bit of sheen to it. Yeah. yeah very I nice. I like working with it and it melts very quickly. What, one quick thing I just want to uh, ask you about today. I did a, a Zoom class uh, very briefly with a college today and we had a, a discussion. It was one of those, somebody asked a question and it led us into a really interesting area, which I hadn't planned to discuss at all. Um, and it, it was, it, it crossed over a little bit with what we talked about when we were writing our article for prosthetics magazine about how much to charge. Yeah. And the question was basically about um, uh, like, like asking for stuff and kind of feeling bad about asking for money or asking for enough money or asking for enough time. And it basically boiled down to uh, a lack of assertiveness or a feeling of a lack of assertiveness and whether that was a prevalent thing. And I kind of posted the notion it is amongst makeup particularly. And I think the reason is twofold and I'm probably going to get hammered for this, but I'm going to say anyway, I think think it's, it's, I think it's prevalent across business in general. Uh, I'll yes. let you get back to your get back to your points, but you know, it's like like going into your boss and asking for a raise. Money mm. is a is a touchy subject. Period. Mm. I think you know even household budgets. Yeah, you know it's it it makes people uncomfortable. Yes. Well, I think um, I guess the question was how do you become more assertive? But also, is it true that or, or is it common that they feel this way? Because some people are saying, you know, in the past they've had to ask for things and they've either been rejected or they were granted it, but, you know, made to feel like something special had happened because they've been paid what they needed or anything like that. And I, yeah. the way I kind of, the, I, I see it a lot because, I, you know, I teach a lot of makeup schools and a lot of the people who are on those classes are quite young. And a lot of the things that they're working on uh run by men and so i think what it is is the men who are initiating these uh projects don't buy makeup typically so they don't know how much makeup costs they will willingly spend a fortune on lenses and camera hire and visual effects because in their minds they can see why that costs money but they don't understand like that a palette might cost money too and so there's a pressure there in that the people asking for it, especially the lower budget stuff, they don't realize that just because the budget on the show is low, it still costs money to buy the stuff from the store. And secondly, I think if you're just starting out, you are quite keen to please. You want to make people like you. You want to be hired again. So the way you do I that is waves. by agreeing to everything. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you agree to it. So you kind of, there's a part of you that feels like, you know, that you're going to upset the apple cart if you sort of, put your foot down or make it clear and there are ways of doing it and i think that this could be another discussion for another episode we need to speak to some people who would be good to bounce off of about this i don't want to hijack this very long episode so far with this point but i just want to run it by you that um that a, a kind of assertiveness training or at least examining how it feels when you're in those situations is a worthwhile exercise before you get into it just as much as sculpting and molding and sticking on pieces is how to get what you need well, how to get what you need and how to pitch 
what you need in such a way that if someone's not willing to pay it, like, for example, one of the, the things I pointed out is like, like if, if you've got a job to do, say you do it for free, say you say you agree because it's someone you like, or it could be a really good opportunity. And I've done it myself. I've done it for friends and stuff like, you know, I'll, I'll do a job for nothing. You know, I don't want to, but and you're using, using material from your own stock that you already have. Exactly. That's, that's what I was going to say. Now, if it costs you, say you use, I don't know, 50 quid worth of materials to make something that is not a lot of money given how much materials cost generally and how much your time should cost right. that you're not willing for. Right. So if they're just paying for the materials, they're getting a good deal. So if you've got like someone wants you to do an effect and you sit down and you work it out and you go, Oh, this is a couple of thousand pounds worth of work, but I'm going to do it for nothing. But the materials could come to maybe 200 pounds or $200. Right. If that's what it costs to do it just for materials, if they're going to bulk at that and they're not prepared to cover the costs of your materials, there's no way in hell they were ever going to pay you the other 1,800 pounds that you, that you should have had to do the job. So it's, and that could also be a red flag right there to just to just say, you know, I would love to do this project, but the stars are just not aligned properly. Well, this is the this is the point. It's kind of like, look, if if it if it's going to cost you two hundred pounds to get the materials to do their project, well, one, you're now a producer because you're financing their project, <laughs> so you're not just a makeup artist. You're actually in the production, as far as I'm concerned. But secondly, if they're not going to cover the costs and so, so you're worried that you're going to lose the job. Whoever else does the job has either got to supply 200 pounds worth of their own materials because it's going to cost them that to replace that, or they've got to buy to. So it's still going to cost the production the same money because that's the bare minimum is the material it takes to do that. So if they're going to find someone that's going to actually finance it for them, that's not a job. That's a charity. That's a benevolence on your part to do. So yeah. you shouldn't be made to feel bad for, for turning that down. But I think that's the thing. If you know what something costs you to do, like if you want this and I have to go out and spend a hundred pounds on materials, it costs a hundred pounds to get these materials, regardless of who you are. So if you shouldn't feel bad about that, that cost being covered, um, you know, and you certainly shouldn't feel bad about being paid what you're worth, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving the, the, the example of doing a job for nothing. Yeah. You still need those, those material costs covered because that yeah. is, May do a job for nothing, but don't lose money. Yeah, you shouldn't lose money. And there may be good reasons to help somebody out. But like I say, it's just the cost of materials because that has to be covered. And I, I think that is a red flag. That is something you shouldn't feel bad about if they won't do it. Because if you see it as, but this is what it costs, rather than this is what I want from you, it's kind of like, no, that's that's reasonable. And if you're not going to pay it. Like if, you know, if I went to a restaurant and loaded up and stuffed my face and said, that was lovely. I don't feel like paying today. <laughs> you know, it would be lovely if you could do that, but that is not how a restaurant works. Or I know, I know the menu, I know you, the menu says market price and market price is $55. I'll yeah. give you 10. <laughs> it's not an Marrakesh market. So it was an interesting point. And it's something I think would probably be worth addressing uh, in the podcast because, and I would like to talk to people um about it i mean get in touch with us on, on the podcast you can yeah. drop us an email at Stuart and todd at gmail.com or leave or us you, leave us a message on the website or leave us a voice message directly yeah on, on directly on the website you can leave us a, a free voice message there um battles with bits of rubber.com and that would be good to to have a discussion but there's a few really good uh tutors that i've spoken to who i think would be excellent people to have on the podcast specifically to 
to chat about this kind of thing because they will they will have been in uh, having run and worked at makeup schools they will have had a lot of examples of students who people try and take advantage of and they're good cautionary tales to uh, basically you know talk about i think because i think it's 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 outrageous that it happens but like i say the thing is there are bad people out there and they will look for weak links in the chain they'll they will push the chain link things until they find something that gives you know and and so it's not uncommon yeah. to find people who are full of their own bullshit who will exploit somebody who is clearly nervous about asking for money and to take it. advantage of others yeah. Yeah. And, and there's some brilliant ones on facebook i've seen i've screenshot a few ages ago someone like massive hollywood producer you know is making this amazing feature it's going to be huge with all these stars but we need people for nothing and you need your own car and all this kind of stuff and it's like um you know you're not you know <laughs> your own lodging not, you know having worked on some rather large productions <laughs> directed by spielberg and the like i can assure you that's not normally the way it's done <laughs> so it's like it's, it's quite funny when you see those things and if somebody isn't aware of that it can sound like you know because they're so keen to do it and that people know that and take advantage of it so um i think that getting in on the ground floor what a great opportunity <laughs> exactly so i think that might be an interesting conversation to have um i think so too rounding up uh, our conversation um check out adam bean's websites so if you go to adambean.com it's eight you will have seen if you saw the uh, the artwork for the episode, but it's Adam A A A D A M and Bean is B E A N E. It's not without the E; it's with an E. AdamBean.com or his Patreon. He's got a Patreon that just started up. Patreon.com forward slash Adam Bean Creates and his Instagram, which is also Adam Bean Creates. And I, I really, really, really recommend you follow him on Instagram because his stuff's amazing yeah. and very, very exciting and inspiring stuff. He's yeah. He, well, as you now know, he's a neat guy. He's indeed. And it was an absolute joy. And that time just flew by. It was awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you for and making we'll, it through that far. <laughs> we'll talk we'll talk to you again soon. You can get in touch through our Facebook page or email us at stuartandtodd at gmail.com. Check the show notes for more information. If you enjoyed this episode, tell someone else and help us grow by sharing it on social media. Thanks for listening.